I was listening to a sermon the other week, and the pastor relayed a story that he had heard from another pastor in England. And this pastor in England, his name was Frank Dixon. And he pastored in England for several years. And he, in one of his services, they were having kind of a testimony time. And we've all been in services like that where people go around, they kind of give a testimony about their salvation, how they accepted Christ as their Savior. And one young man came up, his name is Peter. And Peter starts telling his testimony, his salvation story. And he says, I was on vacation in Sydney, Australia. And I was walking down the street, a street named George Street. And as I'm walking down the street, this little white-haired man came out of nowhere, just walked up to me and said, Excuse me, sir, I don't mean to offend you, but if you were to die, do you know where you would spend eternity, in heaven or hell? It's a very important matter. Have a great day. And off he went. And Peter said that, that, that question just stuck with him. And he couldn't answer it. And so he said it prompted him when he got back to England from vacation to find a pastor in the area and have this man give him the gospel. And he says because of that man's question, he accepted Christ as his Savior. It was an incredible story. Well, several weeks go by and this church has a missions team from America come in. And this missions team is there and they're doing some work and helping out. And during one of the services, they have their missions team members come up and give their salvation testimony. And a man named Noel, he gets up there and he tells his salvation story. And he says, I was, sta I was in the military and while in the military I was stationed in Sydney, Australia. While in Sydney, Australia, I was walking down a street named George Street. Out of nowhere, this little white-haired man came up to me and said, Excuse me, sir, I don't mean to offend you, but if you were to die, do you know where you'd spend eternity, heaven or hell? It's a very important matter. Have a great day. And he said that story just, that, 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 that question just stuck with him. And it prompted him to seek someone out who knew the gospel and explain the gospel to him. And he accepted Christ as a Savior. And he said the only reason he accepted Christ as a Savior was because this little white-haired man in Sydney, Australia, asked him that question. Well, this pastor, he's just amazed. Two people... In about a month's time, on separate parts of the world, finding this one man in Sydney, Australia, and it's just an incredible story, and he's amazed by it, and he's telling everybody he knows. Well, several months go by, and he goes to Australia to preach. Now, he's not in Sydney. He's in a, another smaller town on the other side of the uh, island preaching. And while preaching, he tells that story. He goes, i got to tell you an incredible story. And he tells the story about this little white-haired man in Sydney, Australia. And as he's telling the story, a man in the back stands up and says, That's my story. That's how I got saved. I was on vacation in Sydney, Australia, walking down George Street. This little white-haired dude comes out of nowhere, says, Excuse me, sir, don't mean to offend you, but if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity, heaven or hell? It's a very important question. Have a great day. And he said, That question made me find someone to explain the gospel to me and accepted Christ as my Savior. And now this pastor, he's just like, This is... This is incredible. There's no way this is possible. He's just amazed. Well, he's traveling through Australia. He goes to the other side of the island, and he tells the story. He goes, now I've got three people, the exact same salvation story, and he tells the story after the service. A deacon comes up to him. He says, you're not going to believe this. But that's my story. I was in Sydney, Australia, walking down George Street, and that little white-haired guy came up, asked me the exact same question. That question stuck with me so much, it forced me to find someone to explain the gospel to me, and I accepted Christ as my Savior because that guy asked me where I would spend eternity. Well, now the pastor is like, this is amazing. Four people, it's incredible. Well, he goes to India. He's preaching at a missions conference in India to a bunch of veteran missionaries. He tells a story. He's got Peter. He's got Noel. He's got these two guys in Australia. And when he's done, a missionary from India, an old missionary, comes up to him and says, you ain't going to believe this. That's my story. 
I was on a business trip in Sydney, Australia, walking down George Street. Little white-haired dude comes up, asked me the exact same question. Because of his question, I accepted Christ as my Savior. Incredible story. But now, this guy, he's just, he's amazed. So he goes to Jamaica to preach. He's in Jamaica. You know where I'm going here. He tells a story. He's got five people who this little white-haired dude has, has dealt with. And all of a sudden, a guy comes up to him after the service and says, You ain't going to believe this, but I'm another one. Sydney, Australia, George Street, little white-haired dude. Because of his question, I accepted Christ as my Savior. Well, now, this pastor, uh, Frank Dick, Francis Dixon, he is, he is so amazed that he just thinks, I've got to go to Sydney, Australia. I've got to find out what's going on over there. So he gets on a plane. He goes to Sydney, Australia. He has a friend over there who's in the ministry. And he gets up with this friend. He goes, I'm going to ask you something. It's going to sound weird. But do you know of a little white-haired dude that hangs around George Street asking people where they're going to spend eternity? And the guy says, oh, you mean Frank Jenner? Yeah, I know him. But Frank Jenner is now, he's an old man. And he's very sick and bedridden. He doesn't, he's not able to get out anymore. And he says he's, he, he did that for years and years and years, but he's, he's not able to get out anymore. And he's, he's on hospice care and he doesn't have much long anyway. And so this guy, he's just like, I, I got to go see him. So they take this, this pastor from England, they take him to see Frank Jenner. And he sits down with him and he, he tells Frank Jenner this story. He says, over the last year, I've met six people all around the world, from England, from Australia, from India, from Jamaica, from America, I've met people all around the world who told me they accepted Christ because they were walking down George Street and you came up to them and asked them, I don't mean to offend you, but if something were to happen and you were to, you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity, heaven or hell? It's a very important issue. Have a good day. He said, because you asked them that question, these six people accepted Christ as their Savior. And as he's telling the story, Frank Jenner just begins to weep. And he tells the pastor this, he goes, I don't know how many thousands of times I've walked up and down George Street and talked to people about eternity, but this is the first time I have ever heard about any of them coming to Christ. Well, time goes on and Frank Jenner, he goes home to be with the Lord. Shortly after he dies, after his death, his daughter and another pastor do some research and they start talking to people online, and they start talking to people across the world, and they just do as much research as they can, and as best as they can estimate, over 200,000 people came to Christ through Frank Jenner, walking up to them on George Street and saying, excuse me, I don't mean to offend you, but if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity, heaven or hell? It's a very important issue. Have a good day. And I heard that story, and I was, I was amazed. It's one of those stories you hear and you're like, no, that's just preaching. That can't be true. And it amazes me. And as this preacher was telling this story, and I was, I was, I was mowing the grass while I'm listening to this. And I'm listening to this, mowing the grass, and I think, there's, just, there's no way. It is too incredible. I am amazed that this could happen. And as I'm thinking that, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, why are you so amazed at the power of God? Why does that shock you? So much. And it shouldn't shock me, and it shouldn't shock you, and here's the reason why. God desires to use us to display His power in the lives of others. See, God wants to use me. God wants to use Frank Jenner. God wants to use every single one of us to show how incredibly powerful He is in the lives of everybody we come in contact with. 
From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible reveals to us the sovereign power of God. God is powerful. God is so big, we can't even comprehend how big he really is. Everything we see, everything we see, taste, touch, hear, the stuff we can't even see, every bit of it was spoken into existence by God the Father. He just said, let there be, poof, and everything was. That's how incredible powerful he is. He fed the Israelites every morning for 40 years with food from heaven and water from a rock. I mean, you realize how incredible? He gave them water from a rock in the desert every day for 40 years. I did the, I did the, the math on that one time. God provided for Israel, I think I figured it out, 800 billion gallons of water in a place that gets one inch of water a year. That's incredible right there. That's how powerful our God is. He parted the Red Sea and allowed Israel to walk through on dry ground. He raises people from the dead. He heals the sick. He walks on water. There is nothing too big for our God. And we hear a story like that of Frank Jenner, and we're amazed. But the truth is, God wants to use us to display his power in the lives of other people just like that story. <clears throat> we've said, we've been, for the last couple weeks, we've been looking at the miracles of Jesus while he was on earth. And here's what we've said miracles are. Miracles are the extraordinary power of God being unleashed in our ordinary lives. And every week I've asked you, hey, who needs, who here tonight needs the extraordinary power of God unleashed into our life? And every one of us can sit back and say, in this area or that area or this situation, I need a miracle. I need God to do something incredible in this area of my life. But here's what I want you to ask, what I want you to answer tonight. How many of you know someone who needs the extraordinary power of God unleashed in their life? You ever think maybe God wants to use you to show them how powerful he really is? God wants to use you to give someone else the miracle that they need. We've been looking at some characteristics of miracles, and maybe God wants to use us to unleash his power into the lives of others. And that's what we see happening in Mark chapter 2. So we've been looking at the characteristics of, of people in the Bible who experience the, uh, the extraordinary power of God and what they did to kind of put themselves in a position to receive that miracle. And again, we can't, I'm not telling you how to get your miracle. There's no way you can twist God's arm to make him do what you, what you want him to do. But you can have these characteristics where you are in a position where if God in his sovereign will decides to unleash his, his extraordinary power in your life, you are ready to receive it. But tonight, I want to look at a passage where God works through someone else's life, to be, to, works through other people to bring an extraordinary power to someone else. He uses four friends to do a miracle in the life of one man. So look at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse number 1. <clears throat> and again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. Now Capernaum, of course, is where he's from, so basically what the Bible is saying there is, hey, Jesus came home for a while, and everyone realized it. People knew he was home, so the city got busy coming to where Jesus was. And straightway, many were gathered together, Insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. 
and they came unto, and they come unto him. But now look, we don't know who they are. They. We don't know their names. We don't know their relationship to this guy. We don't know anything about them. We just know it's a they. They come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed where the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, now, not, not the faith of the man that's being lowered down through the ceiling, but the faith of his friends, the faith of the four men who loved this man so much and cared about this man so much and was so concerned about him that they did anything they could to get him to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, look what he did. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man uh, speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately... When Jesus perceived his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up the bed, and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way unto thy house. And immediately he arose, and took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. You know what that means? That means we ain't never seen nothing like this before. An incredible miracle that Jesus did. The extraordinary power of God being unleashed in the ordinary life of this man who was sick and paralyzed. And it all happened because of his faithful friends. Because he had people in his life that loved him enough that they didn't care about their miracle. They wanted to do something for him. We see the power of God in this passage. We see the power of God over the mind. He knew what the Pharisees were thinking. I mean, can you imagine your Pharisee sitting there, and as soon as he says, thy sins be forgiven thee, you don't, you're not talking to your friend. You're not saying, who's he? You're thinking, who's he to say your sins be forgiven thee? And Jesus says, why are you thinking, who's he to say that? And you're like, whoa, okay. He's reading my mind now. He knows exactly what I'm thinking. So he had, we see the power of God over the mind. He knew what they were thinking. We see the power of God over the body. He was able to heal this man. And we see the power of God over the soul. Jesus forgave this man's sins. The power of God is unleashed in an extraordinary way in this moment. And it happened because of these faithful friends. So what I want to do tonight is I want to ask us a couple questions. And if we want to be used by God... To see him work powerfully in the lives of others. we got to answer these questions for ourselves. Here's the first question. Am I watching for God's activity around me? You ever been to a t-ball game? They're fun to watch. No baseball gets played. It's, it's a bunch of kids sitting in the field. They're playing in the dirt. They're playing with the grass, they're chasing butterflies, they're picking their nose, they're looking at it. And the only person who's doing anything is the coach at the plate with the kid with the bat. That's the only kid actually doing anything, and then he hits it, and then he runs usually the wrong way. But, I mean, it's just, it's fun to watch, but there's, there's not a whole lot of baseball going on. Now, when you get the kids up to... Or the ring, y'all hear a ring? 
Soundguy. <laughs> They're talking. All right, anyway, so we'll have another sound guy go back there. So when, when, when the kids graduate from T-ball and they go to the baseball area, one of the first things you've got to teach them to do is, is really how to play baseball. And you have to teach them this philosophy of always being on their toes. What you got to teach them is no matter where, where you are in the field, no matter what position you're playing, no matter what's going on, you always kind of have to be on the balls of your feet so that if something happens, you're ready to, to get there. Because with baseball, you don't really, the, the action is not always with you. Sometimes you can be in the outfield and you can be out there for eight innings and nothing happens in your area, but then all of a sudden the game-winning uh, fly ball comes your way and you've got to be ready to get into action and to take care of it. So you teaching these kids to, to be prepared. Now, here's the spiritual principle. God is at work around us all the time. God is always working, is always moving. And these four guys, they were on their toes looking for God moving, looking for what God was doing so they could get involved as soon as they saw God move. When they saw God's activity around them, they were ready. Now, look. Not everyone who was close to Jesus that day was ready. Look at verse 4 again. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. So not the crowd, in verse 4, we are told that the, the crowd was so big, they couldn't even get to Jesus. But the crowd wasn't focused on everyone else. The crowd was focused on themselves. The crowd didn't care about other people's needs. The crowd cared about their own needs. They didn't notice what Jesus was doing around them. They only cared about what Jesus could do for them. That's the way, unfortunately, the church is today. We have settled for a self-absorbed faith. It's not about what God can use us to do for other people. What can God do for me? We have a connection to Jesus. We have a connection to church. But it's all about what can Jesus do for me? What can the church do for me? They didn't care what God was doing around them. They didn't care how they could connect others to Jesus. They were consumed with what they could get out of it. But not these four guys. These four guys, they didn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we need you to do this for us. They said, Jesus is working and our friend needs him. So I, and I'm sure these four guys had needs. I'm sure they had problems of their own life. I'm sure they could have used a miracle as well. But they said, you know what, it doesn't matter what I need. This guy needs to get to Jesus. And so they were willing to do anything they could to get their friend to Christ. They were consumed with what they could, they weren't consumed with what they could get out of it, but what they could do for other people. So answer this question for yourself. How many of you came here tonight and you thought, Lord, how do you want to work in me today? Lord, what do you have for me today? And look, that's a good question to ask. You should come to church expecting God to do something in you. You should come to church expecting God to speak to you and to work in you and to do a work in your life. That's, I'm not saying that's a silly question to do. You should come to church saying, God, I am expecting you to do something in my life today. But we should also come to church expecting not only God to work in us, 
but God to work through us. There's other people here today, and they have needs as well. So we should come thinking, Lord, how do you want to work through me today? Lord, what can you use me for to be a blessing to someone else? Are you part of the crowd that's so pressed in and so concerned with what you can get out of God and what God has for you that you are neglecting the hurting people that are around you? There are people we come in contact with every single day who are in desperate situations, but we are too concerned about ourselves to care anything about what God has for them. We are oblivious that God is working in the lives of others, and we have adopted a self-absorbed faith. God is wanting to move through us, but we have blinders on to the cares and the concerns of other people. John 5, 17, Jesus said, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. Now, that phrase, my father worketh, is in the present tense. That means it is describing an ongoing, continuous action. You know what that means? That means God is always at work around us in every situation, in every day, everything that we go through. God is always at work around us. At school, at our job, in our neighborhood, at the grocery store, in the gym. God is working in the lives of everyone around us, and he wants to use us to work through, to, he wants to work through us to help them get themselves, get to Christ. Are we living on our toes or are we chasing butterflies? Are we so distracted by other things in our lives that we're missing how God is working in the lives of other people? How do we, do we live on our, so how do we live on our toes? Well, a couple ways we live on our toes. First of all, it requires daily time alone with God. Your time with God every single day is vitally important. It's not something you can skip. It's not something you can put off till next week. I'll do it one day a week and that'll be fine. You know, it, 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 Jesus called it our, you know, he said he's the bread of life for a reason. You eat every single day. Every one of us does. Sometimes, usually seven or eight or nine times a day. But you eat every day. You should walk with God every single day. Your daily time with God is vitally important. When my daily time with God is right, when I'm walking with God faithfully and I'm, I'm hearing from him and I'm talking to him and, I'm just, and I can feel the spirit of God in my life, it's amazing how many opportunities I see around me to be used by God. But when my time with God isn't right, I don't see anything. My flesh doesn't look for opportunities to serve God. My flesh doesn't look for opportunities to be used of God. Why? Because my flesh is selfish. And I don't want to be bothered to help someone else. My flesh wants to take care of me. But I'm walking in the Spirit, I see opportunities to be used of God. So we need daily time with God, but we also need moment-by-moment moment time with God. You can't, you can't spend 10 minutes alone with God in the morning and say, all right, I'm good for the day, I'll see you tomorrow. You, we are supposed to live moment by moment in fellowship with God. It is a constant conversation with God. It's when, you, when a, a situation comes up that you weren't expecting at work or maybe at home, you say, okay, God, what are you doing here? This situation has happened for a purpose. You are doing something. What is it you're doing and how do you want to use me for your honor and for your glory? Everything God wants to do through your life, he will do from the overflow of the Spirit of God 
in your life. So when you find yourself in an inconvenient situation, don't get frustrated. Say, God, what are you trying to do through me? What are you trying to use me for here? So here's the question. Are you watching? Are you watching to see where God can use you for his glory? Where God can use you to bring a miracle to someone else? So not only are you watching for the activity of God, ask the second question. Am I willing to do whatever it takes? Another reason I believe we're not seeing God unleash his extraordinary power is because not only do we have a selfish faith, but we have a convenient faith. I'll follow Jesus until it costs me something. I'll serve God until it gets too busy and it gets too complicated and I don't feel like it anymore. We honestly think that we made some great sacrifice by coming to church today. There are people that do. I know y'all are like, well, I'm here on Sunday night, preacher. You're preaching to the, the faithful. Some of you think, man, I, I gave up Sunday night. I gave up my Sunday afternoon nap. Football's about to start. I'm giving that up for God. And we think it's a huge sacrifice because we're faithful to the house of the Lord. Lord, I'm doing this for you today. And here's, here's one way we always, and the, the worst way we always sacrifice, we'll hear someone has a need, someone has a burden, someone has a problem. You know what we say? I'll pray for you, brother. Now look, I'm not, I'm not dismissing the power of prayer, but if we say, I'll pray for you, brother, as a get-out-of-helping card, we're using it wrong. Yeah, we should pray, but we should probably also do something. If we're using prayer to keep us from actually helping anybody, we're never going to see the, uh, the incredible power of God unleashed in our lives. James 2 says this, said, if a brother or sister be naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, that's the, old, that's the New Testament way of saying, I'm praying for you, brother. You see somebody who's got a need, and you say, I'm praying for you. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful, of the body, what does it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. You know what James is saying? James is saying if you see someone with a need and you can fill that need or you can help with that need and all you do is say, I'm praying for you, but don't do anything for that need, your faith is worthless. It's not doing anything for anybody. It's a convenient faith that doesn't want you to be uncomfortable or make you get out of your comfort zone or, or maybe put a little pressure on you so you don't do anything. That kind of faith that sees, the, the, the kind of faith that sees God unleashed is an active faith. It's a faith that is willing to do whatever it takes. Warren Worsby said about these four guys in Mark, he said they didn't simply pray about it. They put feet to their prayers, and they didn't allow the difficult circumstances to discourage them. These guys were willing to do whatever it took. They sacrificed of their time. They carried this guy on a bed all the way across town. That's hard. You ever tried to carry a guy on a bed across town? It, it's probably not very easy. You got, you know, somebody's hands start slipping, and you, how many times they drop him? They didn't have U-Hauls. They had to put him on his shoulder and walk the guy across town on a bed. It took time for them to do that. You know what they did? They helped a brother move. I hate helping people move. I'll pray for you, but I ain't gonna, I'll give you my dolly. I, but that's what they're like. I'm going to help this guy. That's a good friend. When you find someone who will help you move, 
you found a good friend right there. David Eccleston helps everybody move. Amen. You know, so me and April were talking, Connor and Parker's about to turn 16, and we're talking about getting him a, a vehicle, but she wants to give him my Explorer. And she's like, then I'll buy, you can buy a truck. And I'm like, I don't want a truck. It's like, why don't you want a truck? Because when you have a truck, everybody wants to use you. You got a truck, come help me move. Nope, I want a, I want a little car. So I can't fit nothing in. I can't help you because I don't have the car. But they were willing to do whatever it took. They sacrificed their time. It wasn't easy. It wasn't convenient. They sacrificed their abilities. They invested their resources to help them. You know how I know they invested the resources? Someone had to pay to fix that roof. I mean, can you imagine me and the owner? You're just sitting there. You're, oh, here's, man, I got Jesus in my house. This is awesome. All of a sudden, ceilings start falling down, and there's four guys sticking their head down. You're like, somebody's going to pay for that. Then they ventured. So someone had to sacrifice their resources to get this guy to Jesus. Everything they had was on the table to be used of God, to display his power in the lives of those around them. Is everything you have on the table? Your time? And look, a lot of us, we'll give money in a heartbeat. But we don't like giving time. Time's precious. And look, I get it. We don't, we don't have a lot of it. We're, we're busy, we're working, we got kids to deal with, we got TV shows to watch, we got stuff to do. So time is precious. But is your time on the table? What about your talents, your abilities, your family, your finances, your job, your resources? What are you willing to sacrifice to see God's power unleashed through you? Sometimes what it takes doesn't make sense. Remember in Joshua chapter 6, the story of the children of Israel and Jericho? They see God do these incredible things for them in the, in the, the wilderness.